Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, welcome to the show. This is the Millennial Millionaire Podcast, and I am your host, Stephen Cohen. This podcast is focused on bringing some of the wisest minds from across the globe to discuss concepts, strategies, and ideals that will lead them to be top performers in their respective industries and their lives. This show is for the millennials and millennials at heart to transcend their mindset, their health, and their income to the next level. We are so excited to have you on this journey with us. Welcome to the show. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Welcome back. We have a special guest today, a good buddy of mine, ex-fraternity brother. Well, I guess not ex-fraternity for life, Mr. Gershon Levy. Gershon is currently a realtor out here in Las Vegas with Allison James Estates and Home. He holds a broker salesperson's license. Earlier this year, Gershon was ranked as the top producing agent for his brokerage in the state of Nevada. He is a native son of Las Vegas and attended UNLV where he graduated a degree in finance. Gershon is also also a master at TikTok and social media marketing with over millions of views on TikTok and uh, just super excited to have a, uh, a brother in on the show, man. Thanks for coming in finally. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Looking uh, forward to it. Absolutely, man. So we've known each other for a really long time, um, over a decade, and it's been super cool, you know, when it comes to our fraternity brothers to see kind of where people end up in the growth and really just the trajectory after college. Some people end up using their degree. Some people, you know, just go to all these different kinds of industries. I know real estate has been really big for you. Uh, your main focus the last three, four years. What really got you into real estate after college and what was that transition like? Yeah, definitely. So real estate wasn't the first thing that I was trying to go after, after school, I actually started working with my cousin, uh, and a few of the other brothers. Uh, we, what we were doing was we did business consulting. So companies that were looking for extra capital would come to us that couldn't get bank financing. And this was like 2012, 2013. So it was very difficult back then still after the recession to get money. So I did that for about seven years actually. And, uh, that grew pretty well, but it wasn't that I, that I didn't like it. I just, I kind of, I kind of wanted something new that I really controlled myself, that there was, you know, no cap on income, that there was no, you know, I guess no boss. I want, I really wanted to create something on my own. And, and the, uh, you know, the year before the pandemic happened, I started talking to my dad about real estate because he's always pushed me to do something with real estate business. And, uh, you know, I was like, why don't I just get my license and see what happens? And it was actually really fortunate because I got my license in 2019 and then everything happened with the pandemic the year after the business that I was in started winding down because, you know, everyone's at home there. People weren't really opening businesses up. So real estate was there for me. And I was by that time, I was already six or seven months into it. And uh, I just kind of took off with it. So it became what I look at now as, as my future career. I, I love it so much, honestly. Yeah, man, it, it's pretty cool because I remember when you first got, you know, into real estate. Um, like you said, in 2019, I was like, oh, that's cool. He's making a shift from finance because I know that was kind of what your degree was in. What was that transition like? Because I feel like a lot of people that go to college, um, you know, they go to school, they major in a certain degree or, you know, they they have these plans for after college. And a lot of times, you know, it doesn't end up the way that they hoped or sometimes they kind of get stuck in a career or a space or an industry that they don't necessarily love and they're scared to make that transition. Was that something you were, you know, kind of intimidated by because you spent so much time in college to make a transition over to, you know, real estate and direct sales? Or is it something that kind of came natural to you? Honestly, it came naturally to me because the, the degree I had, I didn't need it to get the job I had, right? Because that was that the job was still, it was still a lot of sales, right? You have to figure out how to work with companies and figure out what they actually need uh, it's a lot of person-to-person -person interaction. And through that, there was, you know, you need to have some sort of financial literacy, but I didn't need a degree to get that job. What The funny thing is I got a finance degree at UNLV. When I applied for my real estate license, they said, 
if you went to college and you had a degree, you only need to take three or four more classes and you can get a license that's higher than a, re a regular salesperson license. So I don't know if you know, but in, in normal real estate, the way that it works is if you get your basic degree, you're called a salesperson here in Nevada. And then if you take a certain number of college credit courses and, uh, you know, if you have a degree and you take some other type of broker classes, you can become what's called a broker salesperson. And that's not, that's not to mean you're an actual broker with responsibilities on you, but uh, it's just considered a higher, a higher designation. Uh, and then above that's the actual broker that, you know, runs everything like that. So uh, even though I didn't use my degree to, to do my finance job right after college, it actually, that degree helped me get a higher designation when I went to real estate. So it was actually pretty seamless. That's awesome, man. So you joined, I feel like at a very unique time, the industry, you know, right before the pandemic, you know, things got a little bit crazy. I think I remember reading a stat a couple of years ago that at one point there was more realtors than houses on the market. <laughs> How do you feel like you separated yourself during that competitive time where I feel like a lot of realtors who maybe started around your time that you started aren't necessarily even in the space anymore? What separated you? Yeah, I, it, honestly, there were so many people joining in 2020 uh, when when the pandemic hit because, you know, it's a job you could do from home and, uh, you know, there, the, the market itself was heating up due to low rates. So when I saw that, I was like, I, you know, I, I got to do something that sets me apart a little bit. So I started producing content because I actually started seeing, uh, I'm sure you've heard of Ryan Pineda in town. Yeah. And I started seeing his videos. And one thing that he was talking about was, you know, I, I'm building a channel because even if I don't do real estate or things in the future, at least you build an audience. And I, and I love that idea to, to build an audience, uh, to grow it, to use it for this and to parlay it for other things in the future. So I was like, what do I want, what do I want my main focus to be? And I was like, I want it to be education because I feel like when you talk to people in just in general about real estate, they know like three or four words. They don't really understand what's going on. They know you should buy a house. Uh, they understand what a purchase price is, but like half the people you talk to don't even know what equity is or don't know what, what the impact of uh, rising interest rates or falling interest rates is. So I'm like, I have to educate. And that was really the, what I went on. So I was like, I'm going to start putting out things about real estate, about the market, as opposed to just putting more salesy content out. That's like, you know, if you're looking to buy come talk to me. Like, I want you to watch this stuff and be like, I want to work with that guy, you know, I, because you, if you give out value, people will come back to you. Totally. And I think that's a big nug for people listening, especially, you know, whether you're in real estate or any type of industry, you know, one way to separate yourself is just to add value without expecting anything right. return, you know, giving out information, free route, free value, good content. You know, the same thing that we're doing right now is going to attract people who are curious about that. And chances are they're going to reach out and, you know, one, want to do business with you because you're already adding free value, but two, you're able to add them to that book of business that you're developing. How was your real estate trajectory? Like in terms of starting your book of business, did you get most of your clients from social media or were you working warm market or, or what did that look like? So when I first started, uh, what most veteran realtors, brokers will tell you is that you really want to hit your, your SOI, your sphere of influence. I mean, that's for any type of job where you're working directly with clients one-on-one -on -one, uh, because these people already have a level of trust and respect with you. Now, anybody that sees you become an, an agent they're going to want to see you be an agent for a little bit, and it's not just a fly-by-night thing. Uh, but I really attacked my uh, sphere of influence. I started doing letter writing. That's a big thing that some new agents should try doing, where basically you become an agent, and you write personal handwritten notes to people around you that you know you trust, that you know have means that you want to work with in the future, because when was the last time you got a, a handwritten note from anybody? Never. It's, it's rare, right? And you'll read a lot of real estate books. They'll tell you that's a smart thing to do. Um, I started doing the videos. I started posting on you know social media generally. And uh, one, one wrinkle that I did was like, I want to do, I've always, I've always liked telling jokes. I've always liked being funny. I started doing some real estate comedy because I was like, I feel like people don't do, you know, 
there's a lot of lighthearted things in real estate that are funny to me at least. And I wanted to, to parlay that and show other people that. So uh, it was a combo of attacking SOI, a sphere of influence, and also creating things that made people think and laugh. I love that, man. How important was brand in terms of developing your real estate business? Brand is, brand is super important. When people, if you think about it like this, buying or selling a house, this is one of the most expensive transactions that you'll ever be in in your lifetime for most people. So you, if you're creating a brand for, for, to, for people to trust you with their you know, hard-earned money or with their hard-earned assets, it has to be professional, respectful, but also like I feel like realistic and down-to-earth. I feel like sometimes you look at you know, certain realtors' pages and, and, and what they post, and it's just too aloof. It's too, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem real. It feels like you're watching um, some, you know, some very, very rich type of person that cannot connect with just everyday people looking for a regular condo or townhouse. So for me, it was to be, you know, educate, educating people, but also making sure that I felt down to earth and, and approachable and real to people. Yeah, no, totally, man. I, I feel like, you know, in today's age where there's so much marketing, there's so much noise, there's so many things trying to sell you on a consistent basis, whether it's products, services, mentorship, right. coaching, the way that you cut through that is just true authenticity and just being a person. You know, in my industry, it's door to door, you know, different sales than what you do, but similar in a sense, it's like your goal is to create that relationship and break down their wall as fast as possible to create trust. And, you know, I feel like in any type of sales business, trust is the key, especially in real estate where it's such a big purchase um, to your point where biggest purchases of, of most people's lives. What do you feel like, what attributes contributed to your success early on in real estate that either you cultivated over time or something that you learned through the process of, of selling? So that's a great question. One thing that I always say is that I'm relentless. Um, if, if I want something or, I'm, or I want to achieve something, I'm not going to stop until I achieve it. And I think with, with producing content, uh, reaching out to SOI, sphere of influence, uh, you have to, you have to keep on doing it, right? It's almost, it, it's what's, what's, what's the term I'm looking for? It's uh, it's compounding interest. There we go. It's compounding interest. You have to do it consistently. Uh, when you're working your sphere of influence, trying to get new clients, trying to build a business, right? You have to think about it. Most people are not looking for a home or to sell a home, but eventually they will make that decision. And you want to be around them just enough so that when they decide to do that, they're going to think of you right away. It's called, it's called being top of mind. So part of that requires you to be relentless in keeping up with posting on social media, reaching out to them, doing all the things that are necessary for you not to be annoying, but to be present when they make that decision and they'll go with you. Yeah, man. Omnipresence, I think is the term, just staying top yeah, of go. mind. So when the opportunity doesn't present itself, you know, out of the hundred realtors that they've probably been in contact right. with, you know, whatever, you're definitely on the top of their mind. No, I love that for sure. Gershon, what do you think was one of the biggest reasons that you were attracted to, you know, just real estate and sales and that whole demographic of entrepreneurship? Because I know for me, the time freedom and just really looking at what everyone else was doing in the marketplace really inspired me to do something different. What was that for you that drew you into a maybe more unorthodox industry? Uh, so when I was younger, my dad was, well, he still is, but when I was younger, I remember my dad was a builder, contractor. So I've always been around homes, real estate, and uh, it, it's always been an interest of mine, but it, it was never something that I thought I was going to, I guess, fall into. I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer, actually. Good Jewish boy. Yeah. Um, but once I got older and I started seeing the val the real value of time and things like that, I was like, wow, you know, I really want to have something where 
there's no cap on income where I control my time and things like that. And for real estate, one thing about me, I love working with people one-on-one. I, customer service is a skill of mine. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very good at I'm very good at having the self-awareness with clients, knowing what they need, knowing how to provide it. So I saw the potential with real estate based on, you know, friends around me that were already in real estate. I had the, the background from, you know, my dad being a builder and contractor and knowing a little bit about it already. And I was really ready to kind of, you know, choose the thing that was going to make me my bones, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. What do you think separates a good realtor from maybe a, a not so good realtor and a bad realtor? Oh, I love this question. This is a great question. Okay. So I actually think about this a lot. And the, di- the biggest thing that I, can, that I can pinpoint is if you are a good realtor or a good real estate agent, you care more about the client being happy than you getting paid quickly. And I know that sounds, so, but I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So a lot of people you'll hear, they go see a realtor and the realtor finds a bunch of houses for them. They'll maybe go see three, five, seven houses or whatever. And they feel like they have to make a decision after seeing just that many houses, like the, the realtors have the system where they, they'll bring them, you know, here's the ones you guys liked. What do you, let's make an offer with me the, with, with good realtors. I feel like that's, that's not what we do. I feel like it's more so you're problem solving. So some people are not ready right away to make a, make an offer and you have to get them there. And when they're ready, that's when you should move forward with it because you know, I mean, you don't want them to have buyer's remorse because the key to growing a big business in my mind is being able to get referrals from from past clients. And they're not going to do that if they felt rushed. They're not going to do that if they had buyer's remorse. So recognizing that you're there for their success and that when they succeed in getting what they want, whether it be selling or buying, you and you will you'll make money off of that, right? That's a byproduct. So I guess shorting it up, I'm more process over profit. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, for everyone out there listening, in any business that you do, whenever you put your client, the customer, first, that referral business is going to come naturally because people feel that people feel the energy people feel, you know, when it's a very transactional and you know, you never want to do businesses with people like you feel like you've been taken advantage of or, or you just didn't feel like you were in full control of the sale. And, you know, I think we can all agree at the end of the day, the best type of business is referral business. And that's the best compliment someone, you know, can give you. I mean, firsthand with my house, Gershon, you know, you sold me my first house. Um, at least for myself, I had, you know, one more home before that for my parents. Um, but it was, you know, I thought it was a great experience overall, but I thought what really impressed me in terms of your ability was when we were actually able to purchase. Cause you know, you know, a little bit more than I did. Didn't this house have like eight or nine offers or something like that? We beat them all out. Yeah, that was, it was such an interesting story. I remember that day we, we found the house, called the guy and he was like, uh, you know, can we set up a showing for maybe Sunday? Because I think it was Friday, and I, I was kind of busy. I wasn't sure I could make it. But he's like, look, I already have eight offers. If you want to see, you should come today. So I was like, all right, let's go do this. So we came to the house, and, uh, you know, we toured it. You guys loved it, obviously. And then by the time I went to go talk to him, he told me they already had 11 other offers. So, you know, we made our offer, and then we waited the, the, for the weekend to, to, to finish because they were going to decide on Monday, essentially. Once Monday came around, I called him and I said, you know, hey, we put in an offer and uh, I don't know if you want me to speak numbers to explain the, the story, but the house was listed for 460000 and with the way the market was going, the fact that there was, you know, 11 offers already, you knew you had to bid over list price. Uh, and plus it was a house with a pool, so those are very rare to find in Vegas at this time. So we made a 480 offer, which was pretty aggressive. And I, you know, I called him, I was persistent with him, I, I was talking to him and I said, look, uh, give me an idea of where we're at. You know, are we the highest offer? Are we the strongest offer? Because aside from the aside from the offering price, you know, we, we put good terms in. 
Uh, we could close quickly. Our, you know, our due diligence time for inspections was short. We weren't asking for a lot of things from them, et cetera. And he straight up looked at me. He said, you're not the highest, but you're one of the strongest. So I was like, I'm not the highest. Okay, well, what's, you know, what's the highest? Like, talk to me about it. He's like, you know, I can't tell you that. I'm like, well, just tell me if the offer price for the highest offer is over five. And he like took a breath, didn't say anything. So I was like, okay, so it's over five. So I was like, who would offer at this time? And I, it, the funny thing is, if, if you bought your house a year later, it would have been normal. But at this time, the market was just ramping up. So somebody offering 10% over market was a little bit weird. And I was like, did this person even see the house? Did they just put a blind offer in to make sure that they could get in and then decide later? So I, I asked them, I said, look, I'm not trying to be too forward or blunt here, but I'm betting you right now that the person that offered over five has not seen the house yet. They put a blind bid in. It doesn't speak for 30 seconds. And then he goes, how did you know that? And I was like, well, because there's no chance that someone's just going to offer that much money, right, without, and, and the, re, and the re, between, so on the podcast, it's hard to explain, but between agents, something happens in real estate where people who are getting beat out for houses they want and are looking at a couple will just make ridiculous offers to be accepted into escrow, and then they'll, they'll kind of negotiate their way down during escrow. Some agents are open to doing that. Others aren't. I don't like doing that. Um, but a lot of these people that are just looking for a place will make blind offers and they'll cancel later. So I told the guy, I'm like, look, the fact that this guy saw it blind, you know, there's a good chance he's going to cancel the contract during escrow. My guy is, is 100% solid. He's going to close. Tell your seller that and get back to me. And we had an accepted offer an hour later. Yeah, man, it's crazy. I mean, it just goes back to a, you know, a good salesperson, a good representative, a good real estate versus um, someone who's maybe not as good. And it's just those little things and and pushing a little bit more and, you know, and and just asking those right questions that will, you know, determine whether or not you you make the sale. And, um, you know, it's been really interesting because over the last three, four, five years, I've really focused a lot more on real estate on the investing side. Obviously I don't sell it, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but yeah, man, all these houses that we've purchased in the last like two or three years, they've completely crushed it in terms of equity and in terms of helping my net worth. And, you know, I look back and I'm like, man, what if I just waited another year or pulled the trigger? You know, it just goes back to that quote. It's, you don't want to wait to buy real estate. You want to buy real estate and wait. I, I totally agree. Uh, obviously, everyone's situation is different. You know, some people that have to wait because of financing issues or saving money or whatever. But I think one thing about the properties that you bought, we've always identified properties that have a chance of increasing in value, like exponentially. You buy houses that have, you know, great backyards that, uh, you know, good square footage, um, right areas, all that kind of stuff. And you really set yourself up for success to be able to make equity down the line. So definitely, I mean, you've, you've been killing it the last two years, definitely. Yeah, it's been great, man. Let's talk a little bit about the investing side, because I think for a lot of people out there, you know, a lot of young, hungry entrepreneurs, people in different industries and different spaces, they want to get into real estate, but I feel like there's big misconceptions. I feel like a lot of people think that, hey, if I don't have a real estate license, I can't invest. I can't, you know, partake in, in this amazing investment opportunity. What advice or what expertise on the investing side can, can you add to the, to the show? Definitely. So real estate investing is really interesting because uh, one thing I always remind people is that a majority of people, majority of wealthy people made their money in real estate, right? Because it's one of the easiest ways to make passive income. Um, You see a lot of stuff on social media, you know, people telling you to, you know, real estate hack, buy a property with, you know, four units, live in one, rent the other three out. And, you know, that's cool for your lifestyle if you want. But I always just say, you know, get the first one, get the first one, because once you have the first property that's cash flowing, 
And, you know, that, that actually, let me backtrack a second to make this a little bit more understandable. When you're, when you're trying to get a loan for a house, right, they look at all your assets, liabilities, cash flow, income, and stuff like that. And they decide how much money you can afford to spend per month, right? And that's how you figure out what your loan pre-approval is. Now, if you own a property and you rent it out, that liability now comes off your books because you're making, right, you're making the money back and uh, even maybe some, some profit on that. So the fact is what I tell people is they worry about like, oh, if I, if I buy this one property, like I won't be able to afford another one. Like I, I feel like I'll only, I'll only be able to get one. And what about my own place? Once you get an investment property and you rent it out and you're making cash flow on that, it's, I'm not going to say it's easy to get the second or third one, but it's not as difficult as you think. And it's, that's especially true if you have a good lender that's working with you. So I always say it's all about just getting the first one, whether it's a condo, townhome, you know, single family residence, if you can afford it, but just getting that first one cash flowing, learning the business, figuring out how it is to be a landlord, figuring it out how it is to deal with repairs, uh, insurance and all that kind of stuff that will set you up to either know that this is for you and you can continue doing it, or maybe it's not for you, but it's always just about getting that first property. I can agree more, man. I mean, I, you know, this is the advice that I give to, um, you know, my team and, and people that I speak to about investing. It's the first one is always the hardest in anything, but especially in houses. I remember, you know, I bought my first house in 2019. It was a rental for my family. And I was so scared of that first purchase for whatever reason. I could have bought a house two years before that. I had the credit, I had the income, I had all that. But because of the fear of the unknown and overthinking, like, can I really afford a house, all the expenses, all these things, I waited you know, a couple of years and then finally pulled the trigger. But after you go through the process of escrow and dealing with the lender and, you know, seeing how the earnest money gets paid back and just going through the process, just like anything else, you realize it's pretty easy and you actually get more excited to get the next one. Yeah. You know, for me, after I got that first one and I saw the potential and obviously, you know, the market's not always going to, you know, appreciate as much as it did over the last three years. And, you know, there's a lot of different factors, but I think just the aspect of almost playing Monopoly in, an ex in a sense excites me because we all know that, you know, most millionaires, multimillionaires, decamillionaires are made from real estate, yet most people aren't taking effort to at least learn about the process and, you know, figure out what they need to do to get into the house. Well, honestly, I don't blame most people for being scared of real estate because if you think about our generation, just growing up with the Great Recession mm. and, you know, seeing our parents, you know, a lot of a lot of people lose their homes and whatnot and seeing home values be halved in a, in a couple of years, it, it is scary. It is scary. But when you, when you really start to learn and understand about it, and that's part of what I try to do with the content on my channel is I try to explain, like, why was the market so crazy the last few years? Like, did this just happen? You know, how, how did this happen? Like, what led up to the, 20, the 2008 recession that caused, you know, the 2010s to be the way that they were that led to us having this. Like, once you understand that, then you can kind of protect yourself and insulate yourself so you're not buying at ridiculous prices and you're not over leveraging yourself. You know, you got to know exactly why it got screwed up so you don't make those same mistakes. But again, I, I do understand why people are hesitant. But again, that first property, once you learn it, it's also, it's also not just about buying the real estate and, you know, being an investor. It's about learning the process so then you can replicate it. Totally. What advice would you give to people looking to get their first property? Would you recommend starting with a primary living there for a couple of years to get a lower down payment and then moving to another one and doing the rental route that way? Would you recommend going straight for a duplex, fourplex? What advice would you get for people wanting to get on the investment side? I, I think it depends on your finances. Uh, there's a couple things to think about here. First of all, when you buy a home that's intended to be an investment property, 
uh, the interest rates a little bit higher because there's more inherent risk there, right? You're not living there. So there's a higher chance in the bank's mind or the lender's mind that you'll let that property go if things got bad. Um, I've spoken to people that say that it doesn't make any sense to buy your own place until you have a couple rental properties that are cash flowing and getting a loan based off that. I've seen other people that say you should get your own place, you know, spruce it up, then rent it out and then, you know, do the hacking thing and moving on. I really just think it depends on what you can afford. Uh, if you are, if you're in the situation where you can afford to rent a place and put all the rest of your money into, you know, uh, buying a fourplex and, you know, cash flowing with that and then using that money to then get a loan and get a bigger house and just stacking that, that's one thing. But most people are in the situation where they're going to buy their own place. It's going to cash flow. It's not, excuse me, not going to cash flow. It's going to appreciate a little bit and then they'll get to a point where they can rent it out and move to the next one. So I know that's not a direct answer, but it really just depends on what you're working with in the bank. Mm. How do you think real estate stacks up as an investment class versus other stuff like stocks, crypto, you know, gold, silver, et cetera? Oh, it's the best one. I mean, it's, they're, they're not making any more real estate, right? Obviously, they're making more houses, but they're not making any more land, right? And, uh, and the thing is that over, over time, I mean, just like the stock market, but even more over time, housing always goes back up, always goes back up. I always tell people this that are worried about, you know, buying a house and it might, uh, I guess, depreciate in value, you know, one, five, 10% in the next year or two. I always say, if, if your goal is to sell the house in that time, then yeah, you shouldn't buy. Uh, but if your goal is to sell the house in five, seven, 10 years, and you're worried about making a profit, well, you're going to make one. The, the, the question is just how much, you know what I mean? Like over time, things will always rebound. Mm. No, totally, man. I think the only way you lose money in real estate, if you're over leveraged and have to sell in a bad position, exactly, right? exactly. as long as you're in a position to hold long enough to, you know, deal with the, the ups and downs of the market, you'll, you'll always come out on top. Well, part of it, part of it always also though, is that you have to be making smart decisions when you finally do make those decisions. And part of that is choosing a good a real estate agent, being educated by yourself, you know, in real estate, because I know a lot of people that made mistakes because they, you know, they, they work off of bad advice they, because they don't know a lot about real estate themselves and they take advice from the wrong people or, you know, they just like, I've been out of this so long. I just need to jump in. Right. You know what I mean? And, and you jump in at the wrong time. That's why you need good trusted advisors and you need to consume content that has, that's actually informing you, not just entertaining you. Yeah. No, I think there's so much content out there right now with real estate and it's such a, a hot topic that there's definitely some misinformation out there. And, you know, I agree. I mean, one of the cool things about, you know, real estate agents and, and lenders is, you know, especially on the buyer side, they don't charge you anything. You know, someone right. could reach out to you or any realtor, any lender and just learn information, learn about the process. And obviously it's benefit for you because the hope is eventually they, you know, buy a house down the road, but there's so many resources and free information out there. It's just all about getting educated so you can make those right decisions you know preparation plus opportunity equals success yeah that's that's, that's so true and, I, and it's one of the the, the the number one questions that i get is you know what does it cost to use your services especially if you're buying it doesn't really cost anything you're not supposed to say that there's no cost to the client because technically the way that it works is if you're a buyer and you know you use a buyer's agent uh the buyer's agent gets paid a commission out of the proceeds of the sale from the seller side so essentially, the buyer is not directly paying you, but because of their participation, right, you're getting paid out, so indirectly. But a lot of people are worried or kind of a little apprehensive speaking to realtors, asking them questions prior, because they're worried that once they open up that dialogue, essentially the sale of the transaction started. And it's not like that at all. A lot of me, my, uh, my realtor buddies and I, and I we laugh about it because we say our ideal client is somebody that comes to us a year before they're ready to do anything and says, hey... In summer 2023 or winter 2023, I plan on buying a house or selling a house. Like, how do I prepare for that? 
Because once you have that amount of time, you can get, you know, you can prepare the house correctly, prepare their finances correctly, like really, really have a, a, a long view of a market so you can jump in at the right time. A lot of people that make impulsive decisions make bad decisions. But they're, again, they're worried to speak to an agent because they're, they're, they're worried once they start that convo, they're going to be forced to do something. And it's not like that at all. Totally. Let's talk about interest rates a little bit, because obviously the, the current landscape of the economy, the United States, interest rate, everything's a little bit out of whack right now. Yeah. You know, stock markets, 20 to 40% down, cryptos, a bazillion percent down. You know, it feels like everything is just on the way down. Other than real estate, at least in Las Vegas, it seems like it's slowly declining, but it, it seems like it's been able to, um, you know, weather the storm up until this point. What do you think more important? What do you think is more important, Gershon, when it comes to you know buying a home or an investment property? Is it is it price? Is it interest rate? Is it trying to get the best of both worlds? It is trying to get the most best of both worlds. So, one thing that people should realize is that right now interest rates are at like twenty something year high. I forgot what this the, the specific amount of time is, but they've been at, it hasn't been like this for a very long time. And the reason, obviously, is because the the Fed is trying to crush inflation by crushing demand. Right, they can't. The, this whole inflation thing was started because of the of COVID, and there was a supply side issue with you know getting things from other countries and just everything shutting down, and it, it reverberated with every part of our economy. And now, because we can't impact the supply side, we have to impact the demand side to bring inflation down. So they're raising rates so aggressively that it's basically killing the demand for the real estate market in a lot of places. Uh, so if you're looking to buy, right, one thing that I always say is it has to be price and interest rate because when most people are shopping for a house, what are they thinking about? They're not just thinking about, oh, this is a $500,000 house. They're looking, well, how much money per month am I going to have to pay? And the interest rate is what determines that. I'll give you an example. If you took a $500,000 house at 3%, right, the monthly payment, I think, and don't quote me on this, and people are going to come and say PMI, this and that, but the basic, the basic payment for a 3% rate, $500,000 mortgage is right around like $2,000 or $2,100 a month. If you take the same $500,000 mortgage and you make it now a 5% payment, you're at like 26 or 2700. So just 2% increase and now we're literally increased 6 or 700 dollars. And we were at a 3% rate on average in like, you know, January 2022, February 2022, like 6 and a half or 7%. Right? So the same house for 500,000 that was costing you 2100 now is costing you like, I don't know, 3500. It's crazy. Uh, so Another thing is because of that, obviously prices are starting to come down, like you say. So some people are like, oh, well, if the prices are coming down 10, 15%, is it the time to jump in? Even though the rates are so high, my payment's so high. Well, here's a problem. Let's say you buy a house right now and you still think that the market's going to go down another 5, 10, 15% in the next couple of years. And in your mind, you're like, well, it's okay if I buy at 7%, I can just refinance later, right? Well, what happens if you buy at a 7% rate and then price you buy the house at, it goes down, I don't know, 10, 15, 20% in the next year or two. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm just giving an example. The problem is, is that now you're, let's say, in negative equity, and if the rates come down, you can't refinance, mm. or, it's, or it's very expensive too. So buying, or buying a house is a combination, like I'm saying, of making sure that the price is right and the rate is right, because if you buy, let's say, because there's no other competition in the market like there is now, but the rates are really high, you might get screwed and you, want, you might not be able to refinance. So you got to make sure you're getting it at a price that's low enough that you can absorb whatever the market's going to hit you at when the prices come down. So that's something that some people forget. You hear all the time, like, you know, you know date the rate, you know what I mean? Like, but it's not like that. It, it, the, true, the true thing about it is that you need to make sure that you have enough cushion in there 
that if rates stay like this for a while and prices come down because of it, that you're still able to refinance when the price, when the, the rates do come down. Man, that's really important, you know, because I was one of those guys too. It's like, oh, interest rate doesn't matter as much as long as you can, you know, float the payment for X, Y, and Z, then you always have the opportunity to refinance. Right. I never thought though, what happens if the market turns and you end up going underwater on this property, yeah. you can't refinance and you're, you're kind of stuck. That is a, that's a very interesting point that people definitely need to take into consideration. So what do people do? Do do they wait until they have enough money or maybe more than that they expected to, you know, be able to afford a higher house? Do they outlast and hopefully rates start kind of going back down? Like what, what do people do in this type of climate? So essentially, if you're still, if you're if you're able to buy right now, you want to buy. Um, what I'm doing with a lot of my buyers is you're making lower ball offers. I'm not talking about, you know, 30, 40 percent under, but you got to be able to you know, progress or forecast forward and see, hey, do I think the market's going to be at this level in a year or two? No, I think it might be, you know, five or 10% below. So my offer has to be there so I can absorb it. So number one thing is, is making those lower ball offers and, and securing enough equity that could absorb the shock of the market. And then otherwise it's, you know, preparing yourself for a time when you think that rates are going to come down. I'm, I'm in the mindset that rates are going to come down, I would say by the end of next year. Um, I think that the, the first of all, the government has a lot of debt, and it can't it can't service all that debt at this interest rate that we're at, and it, it's going to go higher too. They're just talking about raising it again, so I don't think that we're going to keep it this high for that long. And I also think that we're already seeing the signs of uh, inflation going down. I think that we're talking a big game as you know the Federal Reserve is because it needs to kind of scare the market into chilling out. Um, but uh, you either have to make a lower ball offer or you have to prepare yourself or when they actually drop rates, which in my opinion will be in about a year. Mm. No, that's very interesting. On the other side of the coin, if you're an investor in this time, you're actually in a pretty good position. Oh, yeah. If you have cash right now, an unbelievable time right now. I've seen some I've seen some crazy, crazy deals on the on the sold uh, the sold deals list. Like every every single agent has access to the MLS and you can see the sold uh, sold information for the last, you know, few days, last few weeks or whatever it is, uh, through our system. And you can see what they listed the, the, the house for, for a lot of places. You can also see uh, what they took for it. Mm. And I, I've seen, you know, certain deals, 475 and they got it for 388 You know, it doesn't happen all the time. You're talking about some people that are probably, you know, were desperate to sell and had to get out of it. But um, almost all of those deals show cash on the bottom. So if you're an investor right now and you're working with cash and you have the manpower and the will to like find those deals, it's a very good time to buy. Cash is king. And even, you know, if you're, you're holding on to a property because, you know, in an inflationary environment, real estate does really well because it, one, it forces people maybe out of purchasing a home and everyone needs a place to live. So it, it increases rents yeah. from the landlord perspective. That's actually really good because your payment is fixed. You know, whatever interest rate you got locked in when you originally got the home, yet more people are having to rent. Therefore, you have more demand. Therefore, you can charge more rent. Right. Yeah, rents were actually going up until, I want to say a few months ago, and that was the byproduct of them raising rates. It was like everyone that was looking for a house was like, I, well, I can't afford this payment now, so I'm going to have to rent. And because of that, rents were going up, but it started to chill out now, and, and, and things are starting to kind of level out. It's, it's, all, it's also the time of the year we're in. The winter time has less transactions and whatnot, but that's, that's definitely true. Yeah. Where do you foresee the market uh, in the next year, Gershon? Does it have to do a lot on, on interest rates? Will that determine kind of where prices go, or is Vegas so secure because of everything going on here that we're in a good spot regardless? So I think it's, it's, a, it, it's a lot to do with interest rates because the inventory of homes is still, it's still low. I mean, 
if we think about what caused this crazy run-up in 2020, 2021, it was a combination of two things. Number one, they dropped interest rates from like, uh, from like I think it was 4 or 5% to 3% because they wanted to stimulate the market at the beginning of COVID and make sure that we didn't go into like a depression. And then that combined with the fact that nationwide, we've had a, a lack of inventory of homes for the last 10 years. So I'll tell you how this happened because this is actually pretty interesting. So everybody knows what happened in the Great Recession in 2008. Uh, there was a ridiculous amount of homes uh, for sale. There was a ridiculous amount of subprime mortgages that, that got caught. The, the whole market tanked. And part of the reason that happened was because in the decade before that, we had this whole thing in America, which was like, you know, everyone deserves to be a homeowner, right? So they were really, really pushing it. They made the terms for getting uh, a mortgage really lax, right? And that's part of what led to this whole domino thing was that uh, – there were certain places you could go and you can get a ninja loan, which is no income, no job, right? And the big short, right? Yeah, big short, exactly. I, I mean, I, I know, I know a, good, a good buddy of ours who was telling me that um, when he used to do mortgages back in New York back in the day, they used to make business cards for people that didn't have a job to qualify them, right? And this was like a normal thing. This wasn't like, you know, this, this company was, you know, inherently bad. It was just done and everyone did it and it was normal because, hey, like, houses always go up in value, so it's fine, right? So... After 2008 hit and we had all these homes in foreclosure, right, there was such a, such a glut of inventory that builders were like, well, we're not going to build more houses now. We're going to slow down what we're building. We need to work through this backlog of, of, uh, of foreclosures and homes. And it took years for that to happen. And the byproduct of that was, like I said, builders started slowing down. They weren't building as much. And then all the subcontractors that these builders employed were out of jobs. So all these guys that were, you know, uh, stucco, tile, roofers, you know what I mean? That whole industry, all those industries, the numbers of employees that those people had dwindled and they, they took jobs elsewhere. So for the, for the whole decade of 2010, let's say till 2020, we'll call it, the number of homes in the U.S. that were built, I think was around like five to seven million homes. And the decades before that, it was like 20 million homes, 20 to 30. And if you think about it, our population is steadily increasing, right? So we got to finally, like in 2017, we finally got to this point where we hit a critical mass. We're like, we worked through all the backlog, and now we were starting to see that there was not enough homes for all of the people that wanted to buy. All the millennials coming of age, all the people that wanted to upgrade, they were finally got, finally done with all the financial problems that the previous recession uh, hit them with. And in 2017, we had a little mini run of, uh, of uh, home prices increase, and it chilled a little bit. But then once we got to 2020, and they dropped the rates, it was just like, match, gasoline, boom. And that's what you saw was everyone could afford to buy a house for a cheap price now because, you know, at a 3% rate, a $300,000, $400,000 house is not that expensive. And there just wasn't that many homes available. So, you know, all of a sudden now you have 20 offers on a home, people paying, you know, $450,000 for a $375,000 home. Like, that's how you get to that climate. It, just, it doesn't just start because of low rates or, you know, pandemic uh, relief money. It's literally a, a, a pot brewing for over 10 years uh, based upon... 2008 and then now combined with our our interest rate just made it explode that's so interesting do you think we're going to get to the point with the way things are going with inflation and you know rising costs that our generation the millennials will get priced out of purchasing a home it's already happening a lot of times you'll see people that have to use their parents to 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 purchase a house i mean if you have that kind of generational wealth it's great but they'll need to get the down payment from their parents or have their parents co-sign um it's already happening, but I will say one thing that I worry about too also is, is eventually the baby boomer generation is going to die out, and they own a lot of real estate. 
And the question is, and, and no one really knows the answer to this, but there's a lot of doomsday people that say, like, once the baby boomers are not here in droves and all their heirs have these homes that they don't need, they're going to sell them and it's going to bring the market down significantly. But, mm. I mean, who really knows? I, the one thing I'll say is that if, if somebody tells you definitively they know what's going to happen in real estate, you need to run. They're bullshitting you. There's, nobody truly knows. You can forecast well. You can look at history. You can look at the numbers and, and you know, protect yourself. But truthfully, like, nobody knows. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why this is true. From personal experience, I remember when the pandemic hit, it was madness. Everybody was canceling contracts. Nobody could sell a home. I remember from March 2020 until like June 2020, I didn't know a majority of agents I knew were not closing anything. Everyone's like, this is it. The real estate market's going to crash. It's going to crash. Everybody was sure it's going to crash. And what happens? Literally the end of summer 2020, the craziest real estate run we've seen for the last two years. It's crazy, man. Yeah, no one has a crystal ball. You know, there's there's experts and, you know, everyone's trying to sell something, whether it's a course or, or something, but yeah. no one really knows what's going to happen. That's why you need certain principles um, that regardless whether it's an up market or a down market, you can stand by to make sure that you're congruent regardless of the swings of the market. 100%. So true. Let's uh let's pivot a little bit. Let's pivot, let's talk about TikTok and social media, man. I think you know it's it's been really cool to see your progression when it's come to you know just monetizing social media to help you know build your your real estate empire. What's some tricks, some tips, some TikTok game? Because you have on multiple posts over a million um, you know views. What's some things that you can share that help people trying to get going on social media and TikTok that'll help their business? Definitely. So the number one tip I tell people. The, the whole secret to TikTok is watch time. It's all about retention, right? It's eyeballs on the screen. That's what all the apps are trying to do. Uh, you know, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, they're all in a battle for your attention. So the way that the, the TikTok algorithm works is if you can keep people on your screen longer, especially longer than what your video is, then it will push out your content quicker into more people. So it took me a while to learn that because at the beginning I used to do these longer videos that were, you know, didn't have the right pacing or weren't hitting the point and you just lose people right away. And then I realized that you need to, you know, have a better hook. You need to have things quicker, choppier. Um, you need to make sure that they can watch your video longer than what your video is, which means that if you produce a 10 second video, you want them watching your video on a loop for, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds. So my number one tip is going to be that when you're creating your content, is it rewatchable? Is it, are you are you are you having people stay there for you know can they get the main idea of your video in the first three seconds to be done or do they need to watch the whole thing to get the value because if you can keep them there the whole time you're going to be successful no matter what yeah and I think one of the things you do really well definitely digestible content but you you throw you throw com comedy in there you throw creativity you you know it, it seems like you're very intentional with your post. I feel like on a platform like TikTok, it's just you can't be as cookie cutter as maybe like other platforms in the past. Are there certain approaches that you need to take in terms of the actual language of the content in order to be successful on there? Uh, I guess that's, I guess the, the, the number one approach I would say is it needs to be like the beginning has to be very, very, you know, engaging. Like they, you, you always hear the hook is the most important thing in any sort of short, and especially with TikTok. TikTok exponentially over time gets more difficult because there's so many people on the platform. Uh, I remember when I first was shooting videos, I mean, I could just shoot a basic video and it would get, you know, one, 2000 views. Uh, that same video now would probably get a hundred views. And that's not because the quality of the videos are changing. It's because, you know, the app, the app has to adapt for the number of people, the number of videos on there. So uh, the, the, the number one approach I'm saying your hook has to be amazing. And also 
for short form videos, I always say the shorter, the better. Try to keep it under 30 seconds. I'm long winded though. So it's, it's hard for me sometimes, but yeah, <laughs> totally. No, I mean, you've been, you've been killing it, man. In today's age, do you think whether you're a realtor, a salesperson, a small business owner, that it is a necessity, not so much a luxury anymore to be on social media in oh, order to compete? A hundred percent. And I used to, I'm not going to lie. I used to think that I was like, why, like, why do I need to be on social media? I don't even, I don't even like Instagram. Same. I'll, I'll be sure. I don't even like Instagram. I, I think you know, Facebook too, I really don't care for it. I always tell my wife that like, if I wasn't in real estate, I wouldn't, I would, I would just have like a lurker page. You know what I mean? I wouldn't post anything. I would just be on there to, you know, see my family, my friends, see what they're doing. But nowadays it's like you said, it's a necessity because you need to show people, right? You need to show people kind of what you're about without, you know, them meeting you. That's how you can get clientele you know, the, the best way without having to be face to face. And this is stuff that lives on, right? You don't have to be present all the time. It's almost like passive income on the internet right? These videos and things like that. So, um, being able to speak about the things you want, talk about your values, mission, all that kind of stuff, show your knowledge in the space to, to demonstrate value. Uh, that's what social media does. And now more than ever, I think it's so important. Totally, man. I was super against just the whole personal brand and, you know, just the whole virtual game. Cause it's just so played out and there's so much bad content and information yeah. and people doing it wrong that I was just like, I'm going to go crush it in real life and just go do what I need to do in terms of my own business and then get so successful that, I, you know, I don't even need social media. And then I studied, you know, I started looking at people like Ed Milet, Grant Cardone, you know, all these super successful business people that would never have to log onto an Instagram page and still be worth half a billion dollars, but they're spending so much of their time and energy and resources developing content and creating brand. And I just, you know, came to the conclusion. It's like, man, if you, can't beat them. You got to join them. Yeah. And, and honestly, you're, you're a great example of that. The, the reason that your content is, is great is because just knowing you and obviously seeing the things be, like what you've done, like there's, you know, there, it's proven already. It's not something where it's like, Hey, this is just like a, tr a try hard or want to be like, you're coming from success already and doing this stuff. So your content hits even more. You know what I mean? There's like you said, there's a lot of people, a lot of bad content on there that are trying to make their success from the content, but your success, your content is basically reinforcing your success already. Totally. And, and I think that's a really good point for those of you guys out there listening, whether it's creating content or trying to create a brand, it's like, go do something of note first, go accomplish something in terms of your life, because there's so many people out there that are sharing their tips and tricks and secrets of success that haven't actually accomplished anything. So step number one, go crush it in real life, whether it's a business, whether it's a profession, whether it's, you know, sales or real estate or Forex or whatever, you know, your main um, you know, vehicle is that you're accomplishing and then monetize and then document, not the other way around, because people can feel that, you know, if, if Gershon was putting out all this content, but he wasn't actually living it, he wasn't actually, you know, practicing what he preaches, his content wouldn't do as good as it does because that level of authenticity is not there and it doesn't hit and land the same way. So I think that's a really good nugget. Gershon, you've been, you've been doing sales and, and entrepreneurship for a really long time. I, I feel like ever since I've known you, you know, in high school and, you know, got to know you a lot more, obviously in, in college, I've always looked at you as someone who is very sharp and has the ability to communicate well. I remember when I was coming up in entrepreneurship, I always used to look at you like Gershon's the closer, you know, I just need to get this guy and he can close everyone. What do you think where have you learned those skill sets or how have they evolved? Like, what do you think have been some lessons in communication that you feel like have gotten you to where you are today? 
That's a really good question. I would say, so I did, I did debate in high school and that got me over my fear of public speaking. Uh, I went to, I went to Meadows actually here in Vegas that a really, have a very, very good debate department. Uh, they used to go to national champion. I wasn't a national champion. I wasn't, I wasn't, te- I wasn't good compared to what they had, but the training I got there really, really helped me with my public speaking. And I think that's part of it is it, with sales, especially is that if you can, you know, go off the cuff and, and talk genuinely with people then they'll really, they'll really, uh, you know, connect with you and, and you'll be able to, to go farther. Aside from that, I'll say it was, it's really just practice. Um, when I was in, when I was in college, my first job in college, funny enough, I answered this, uh, Craigslist ad. It was 2009. So there was like no jobs out there at all. And I was, I needed a part-time job, you know, UNLV, the fraternity, I really wanted beer money. <laughs> so, yeah. so I, I answered this ad for this, um, consulting company. It was called Advantage Consulting, I remember. And they didn't really explain what the job was uh, on the ad, but it was like 10 bucks an hour. It sounded great. It was close to where I lived. So I went to the interview and I found out what they did. They did telefundraising. So fraternities, hospitals, uh, organizations that have, you know, membership or whatever, they will employ, they will contract a company like this and then send them all of their alumni or past clients or whatever it was. And we as a call center would call these people and literally try to convince them to give money to the organization for nothing in return, just donations. And this is like the hardest sell ever. If you think it's 2009, everybody is, the economy is going down the toilet. People are hanging up left and right. Like, I can't believe you're calling me for this. Like what? Like I just lost my house. I'm like, okay, I'll talk to you later. Maybe I'll call back next week. And that was like six months of boot camp on mm. the phones. And that really like, that sent me in a place where I could be on the phone or talk to somebody. And it wasn't like a thing if they didn't want to work with me because I didn't internalize it anymore. And then after that, I started working with uh, my cousin at the you know the business consulting firm, and that was like seven years on the phone with clients, and it's just compounding interest, right? I made a lot of mistakes in the past. Uh, I remember the way I used to be on the phone or with clients, and and you know it's, you make those mistakes and you learn from them, right? Uh, you know, what, what's 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 my what's my favorite saying? It's it's good choices or good choices come from experience, and experience comes from bad choices. So you got to screw up sometimes to become good. Totally. And I think that's really important for people. It's like you look at people that are crushing it in specific industries and it's very easy to write that off on like, oh man, they're just really good. Or he's just a great speaker. Man, he's got a good book of business or, you know, man, he just got lucky off those TikTok videos or whatever the case is. But people don't see the thousands and thousands of hours of failure and practice and work. I actually didn't know that about you. I didn't know that you spent, you know, so much time on the phone, getting rejected, working on your pitch, working on your tonality, but it totally makes sense on why you've been able to catapult your career in another person to person business. Oh, hundred percent people success is an iceberg. I mean, that's, it's really what it is. You only see the success, which is the 10% up top. You don't see the 90% underwards underneath, excuse me. That's, uh, you know, the rejection, the stress, the doubt, I mean, I, I remember I shot this video earlier this year and it, it did really, really well on TikTok. And it was basically like, you know, I always laugh when people say that realtors are paid too much, right? I wanted to be a little bit controversial, get a conversation going. And my explanation was, is that the reason that there's a lot of hate online for like real estate agents, realtors, people in sales is because you only see us saying, hey, I closed this house for 500000 and there's mm-hmm. like a $10,000 commission on it. You know what I mean? That's, that's all you see. So to you, it's like, oh, I could do that. Like, that's not hard. He just signed some paperwork. He opened a door. He... You know what I mean? Like he showed them what the, where the bedroom was like that. That's so easy. I could do it. Right. But that's, that's literally 1% of it. You know what I mean? The prospecting, uh, the, the, the time, you know, figuring out exactly how you're going to, how you're going to find clients, uh, you know, taking them out, negotiating, you know, dealing with them. I mean, a lot of being a salesperson, you're babysitting a lot. 
you know, you're dealing with people's insecurities, you're dealing with people's worries. You know, I've had times where I've been on the phone with a client like two and a half hours, 10 p.m. at night, and they're worried they're not going to get something accepted or they're worried the house isn't going to close. And you got to talk to them, you got to work them through it, you got to be there for them. You know what I mean? So, um, I would say that, like I said, success is an iceberg. There's so much more underneath that that, that creates that 10. percent And I think pe- I think people in sales just get a lot of hate because you know you only see that good part. No, I couldn't agree more, man. How much of your success do you dictate to your own emotional intelligence and being able to control your emotions in you know certain situations in real estate? I think it's a lot of it. I, there's a lot of times in real estate you can take things uh, personally, get down on yourself because there's a lot of rejection. Um, there's a lot of, you know, tough moments. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of times where you think you're going to get a deal and it falls through. There's a lot of times where, you know, you'll be, you can see the finish line and, and, a, and, a, and a deal collapses. Like I literally just had this happen a few weeks ago where a guy I've been working with for like a year and a half that was going to move from, uh, it was going to move from the East coast. And I was doing all, cause because he wasn't here, I was doing all the work for him. Meaning I was going to these houses, I was taking video tours I was doing analysis for him of these houses in these neighborhoods, sending it to him, you know, figuring it out. And it, I didn't care that I was working for him for so many months because I knew at the end that there would be a sale and it would happen. And we finally got into escrow and everything was working perfectly. He was finally going to move here. And then his daughter talked to him about the market and convinced him for this specific situation, even though we were getting the house at a very good price, in my opinion, that it just wasn't the right time. And he canceled. And I could have freaked out. I could have, you know, went nuts. I could have been like, I've been working with you for 18 months how many hours have I put in this and that? I said, you know what? I respect family. I understand. I think, you know, I, I think, I think if you want to come back next summer and look again, that's totally fine. And he, he respected so much and he even sent me a client after that. And I think, I think what you just said right there, whether it's in real estate or any profession is the difference between an amateur and a professional. Yeah. You know, it's very easy for anyone after something like that happened or a big sale falling through that is totally out of their control for them to blame and woe me and go victim and, you know, just deflect personal ownership. But to take ownership of that and be like, man, I did the best I could. But as long as I continue to treat this guy with integrity, not change it up, continue to stay on my horse and continue to push good things will happen. And I'm sure they will from that. Oh, definitely. And it's really understanding that this is going to happen naturally in the sales process. I mean, you're never going to have a hundred percent close rate. Um, You know, have you heard of that 10, three, one, have you ever heard that before? Mm -hmm. Like you talk to 10 people, you get three people on contract, one closes, right? Uh, There's ratios for every single type of, uh, of industry, but like, especially in real estate, you gotta, you gotta talk to a lot of people and you gotta know that eventually, you know, I mean, you're going to be working with somebody for a long time and it's just not going to work out. And all those hours you put in those, you know, 50, 60, 100 hours of time over a year's time, it could just go down. You don't get paid for it at all. And you got to be okay with it because there's other times where somebody calls you out of the blue and says, hey, I just got to town. My buddy gave me your number. I have a million dollars cash. I need to buy a house. And it's like, okay. He's like, I just found this on Zillow. Can we go see it? Yeah. yeah. Go see it. Can I put an offer in? Sure. And that's it. And, you know, it, it balances out. And you got to know that there's two sides to it. And that for all the tough deals and all the bullshit you got to deal with, there's going to be the easy ones and the ones in the middle. And that if you have a long view of it, it'll balance out and benefit you. No, totally, man. Why do you think most people, whether it's sales professionals or anyone trying to accomplish something that is a little bit more unorthodox, why do you think they lack that depth of vision? I think that because they have a short-term view of things, people are just looking about how they're going to make money, you know, tomorrow, next month. I mean, 
I, and I, I'm, not to say that I haven't done that myself, but when I first started real estate, you know, I, re, I was like, I really want this first deal. I really want that first deal. You know, it's, it's, you want to pop your cherry as a realtor, right? Then when you get your license and everyone knows you're getting your license, the funny thing is everybody always asks you, have you sold a house yet? Right. And for the first month you're like, no, I haven't. I'm trying. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, come on, please. Like, and once it finally happens, you know, but eventually I got to the point where I was like, okay, if, if a person that talks to me and they say um, they're trying to buy a house or sell a house and it doesn't work out because they want to wait, that's fine. Because that's a, that's a deal for next year, right? I'm building a pipeline. You know what I mean? As long as I know that it's eventually going to happen and I'm building towards that, that's fine. Like I, I have a view, you know, years out. But I think a lot of people are like, how am I going to make money this year, tomorrow? And, you know, it comes and thinking about that too much, it, it, it translates to your actions and the way you speak and your tonality. And uh, there's, there's a term in all sales, right? Commission breath. You don't want to come across like that, but it happens because you're still a person, you have bills, you have things you want to do. Right. And you want to make it happen. And, and a lot of times it doesn't happen at, the, at your own pace that you want it to happen in. But if you take a longer view and realize that, you know, the average time from lead to close in real estate is more than a year for a lot of people. Once you realize that, then the people that fall through or don't happen now, it's fine because it'll happen eventually. All you got to do is keep pushing. Yeah, I would agree, man. I think it's all about having that business owner mentality. You know, it's the same thing in my business. My, my turnaround isn't as long as real estate, but to really get someone going, some new sales rep that comes in, you know, it could take a couple months to really start seeing any type of decent income to survive. And what I always tell people, it's you have to have that business mentality. Yes. You know, it's not like you're going to get a normal nine to five or if you work a month, you're going to guarantee pay based on the time you show up. This is it's not about time, just like in any sales opportunity. It's about the value that you can put in the time. And I feel like a lot of people, if they came in with a business mindset, almost as if they just invested a million dollars into, you know, a McDonald's, for example, they know that it's going to take time. And then that McDonald's will eventually spit some type of ROI a year, two years, three years. But there needs to be some things that happen first in order to make that business profitable. It's the same thing in any sales job, any type of business, because you have to develop yourself. You have to build the character, the confidence. You have to go through the trials and tribulations. But yet most people don't treat it as such because I feel like there's not a big investment they're making. So they don't have a much, as much skin in the game to really like allow it to pay off long-term. That's very true. Honestly, man, I would pay good money to see a blooper reel of when you're, when your new employees go out to do door knocking for the first time. It's rough. I, I honestly think that would be hilarious because I'm sure it's like unnerving, like, Oh my God, I'm going to knock on this person's door and try to like get them to spend money and, and, you know, and, and, and literally work with me. They've never met me before. I've never done this. It's got to be crazy. Yeah, it's the hardest thing I've ever done for sure. But, you know, it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done because I think in life you have to go after doing hard things, you know, quitting your, you know, eight-year career in finance and pivoting over to a brand new 100% commission real estate industry is scary and it's challenging and there's going to be a lot of resistance, but the reward from that completely outweighs it. It's the same thing with door knocking. I remember when I first started you know, eight years ago now, it was the scariest thing. Like I'm naturally an introvert. Like it was just almost like talking to a girl for the first time and asking them out, but for the first hundred doors <laughs> doing that consistently in a day. And, uh, it's just so interesting looking back because that season of my life literally defined me and helped solidify my new identity and who I am today because of how challenging and how much resistance was there overcoming that allowed me to tap into someone who I didn't know existed um, at that time yeah I can imagine that's that's actually a really good way to put it it's, it's almost like your boot camp that like you know turned you into like 
you know, like a general, you know what I mean? You're just like strong and able to, able to withstand whatever sales could throw at you. I feel like, you know, any type of sales job, especially a hundred percent commission will really test your will and, and see how committed you are into, you know, accomplishing what you said you're going to. Oh yeah. There's, there's going to be a, like, one thing I always say is that, uh, what you're going to see in the next year or so, there's going to be a lot of real estate agents that are about to drop out. I think there was a stat that we added, we added a couple hundred thousand in the last two years, which is a crazy number. It's, there's way too many agents right now. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're hustling and doing it right, more power to you. I respect the hustle from other agents. I love when I see it, but I will be the first to say that there are too many agents out there right now. And I, and I get why it was, it was an easy job to do during the pandemic, but, uh, you're going to see a lot of agents looking for new jobs soon. No, I, I bet, man. You know, I feel like it's such an easy thing to do. Oh, I could sell a couple of houses. I know a buddy that has a house, but to actually turn it into a career and, and not do it part-time is, is probably pretty tough. Yeah, well, what I, what I say, what a lot of agents say is that it's very easy to become an agent. It's very difficult to stay an agent. Mm. I like that. I like that a lot. Do you think everyone has the ability to be a salesperson or you think it's only for a selected few? I think, I think anyone can be a salesperson. I mean, unless you have crippling anxiety dealing with people, but it's all about, it's all about education in my mind. If you become very well versed about what you're trying to work with, whether it be solar, real estate, cars, this and that, um, you know, you know that there's four types of power. The number one power is expert power, right? So if you can become an expert on something, then just your natural knowledge about a, a subject will be able to sell that thing for you. Yeah, no, I agree. I think if you're passionate about, passionate enough about, and you have enough emotional pull to anything, um, you can be successful at selling that. And I feel like it's not even the traditional sales. I talk about this a lot, but I feel like most people just think about the profession of selling as, you know, a real estate agent or a door-to-door salesman or whatever. But everyone does some type of selling on a daily basis, whether it's your husband trying to sell your wife on where they should go for date night or your father trying to sell the child on why they should get good grades in school and eat their broccoli every single night. There's always some type of negotiation. There's always some type of sales opportunity on a daily basis. Some people just aren't conscious of it. So your ability to get really good at influencing people and and helping other people see your point of view, as long as it's ethically, you know, in line with what you believe, I think pays dividends regardless if you're actually in the profession of sales or not. I couldn't agree more. Beautifully put. Yeah. Gershon, let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about the fraternity, man, because, you know, Jake was on uh, another fraternity brother. He has his own podcast. He actually, you know, one of the people that inspired me to, to doing this. I had my own experience in college. I wasn't there very long as, you know, a lot of people know I dropped out and did network marketing and, you know, was a loserpreneur for a while until, you know, I started getting some traction. But what do you think were some takeaways from the fraternity that you felt translated into real life? The fraternity days, man, those were, those were fun days. Uh, the, for the ones who could remember, they were great. Um, college was a fun five years. Uh, I, def- <laughs> I definitely went longer. That's how UNLV is, right? It's, it's hard to finish in four years there, but, uh, Especially it's, when you're talking about the fraternity, one thing I always remember is that uh, it really, really increased my interpersonal skills because you had to, you have to work with people that are a lot of people that are just not like you, and specifically our fraternity, right? So to explain to people that are just listening or don't really know a little bit about our fraternity, uh, Stephen and I were in AAPI, which is the Jewish fraternity. So we, you know, rush guys that were Jewish, and because of that, it's a lot of different types of personalities. Other fraternities, the way that they do things, uh, where they're not, you know, based on let's say religion or, or whatnot, or the way that they go after their uh, their members is based on their religion is they're looking for similar types of guys, right? Because you want to have, you know, you want to have guys that are into sports or, you know, this and that, whatever, similar types of guys. So a lot of them get along because they're looking for that type. In AAPI, there was, 
it was it was almost there was different cliques, right? There was you know, the, quote unquote, the nerds, the jocks, the party guys, just like you know any any other large group of friends or large group of, of people would have. So specifically, our fraternity, it was it was really good because I was exposed to so many different types of personalities, opinions. You know, every Jew has two opinions, right? Five opinions even, right? We're such opinionated people. Uh, it helped me just deal with people, problem solve better, uh, work in groups better, and, uh, you know, just, just you know, operate, let's say, a, a mini business almost. Yeah, no, I agree, man. I, it's funny because, you know, back then, you know, I think Greek life has a bad rep. It's like, oh, you have to pay for friends. And it's just so funny to see the evolution in today's age where we live in the world now of, you know, mastermind groups yeah, and, you know, social media organizations. And literally I, I'm, I'm guilty. I, you know, I've spent tens of thousands of dollars to join these groups and essentially pay for friends, you know, to get myself in the right rooms and, you know, get myself, you know, in front of certain people because, you know, you have to pay to play. And the fraternity reminds me a lot of that because essentially at, at its core, it's a bunch of like-minded individuals in our case, we we're all Jewish, but a bunch of like-minded yeah. individuals that have a common goal. And, and I think my biggest takeaway was just the ability to see culture at a high level. Um, I think Greek life does it so well. Granted, the culture is wrapped around partying and girls and, you know, other things. But in a sense, it's a culture of people all coming together, showing up at a certain spot to accomplish, you know, a common goal or vision. And, you know, I've learned so much from that experience that I took into my own life in my own sales organization in my own businesses. That's really helped me one, like you said, navigate with other people from different walks of life and different personalities, but two, allow me to create a similar culture. Now it's wrapped around personal growth and money right. and finances and freedom, but similar vibes, man. And it's, uh, you know, it was a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah. Listen, I, there's a, there's a lot to be said for really successful, like office culture, uh, that you can look at it and almost feel like it's, you know, a fraternity sorority culture, right? Cause there's like this camaraderie there and you're, you also have a, you know, central goal of, uh, you know, working together on something. Um, I always, that's the way I always looked at it though, was, was fraternity was like a trial run, life especially excuse me specifically college was a trial run for life the fraternity was almost like a trial run for business because you're working in groups and whatnot and uh yeah man so true honestly that you can parlay those those the things you learn there into actual business there's so much parallel it's amazing yeah and, and you had an interesting role you know you were the president at one point which yeah. was super cool i didn't care enough to take any roles i wish i did back at the time but i was at a different season of my life <laughs> what leadership qualities or lessons did you learn running the fraternity that you feel like have helped you in, you know, real estate and ultimately your life right now? That's a great question. I would say, so I was, I was very strong headed when I was, you know, 18, 19 coming into the fraternity and uh, just the exposure to, you know, different opinions. And I, I, I was an, I was an only child. So I almost always thought that, you know, what I thought was right, let's be honest. And then working with, you know, other people, seeing it the way they do things really helped me realize that like, hey, you should, you should really take stock into other people's opinions, look at their experiences, uh, take value from it, and then, you know, come to, come to a decision based on that. Um, one thing I will say, one thing I'll say specifically about just being president, vice president, pledge master, all that kind of stuff was uh, everything that I learned Everything I learned year over year it was just compounding, like I said. And by the time I was in the final year, I, I couldn't I couldn't believe how much I had changed as a person just from you know taking a role, leading these people. I I, I would say right now it was, it was the most beneficial point in my life. That the person I was coming into college and leaving college was two 
vastly different people. And I have the leadership roles that I took in API to thank for that, I think. Yeah, no, totally, man. I wish I uh, took a bigger role because I feel like to your point, I think really college or almost any season of your life, you can almost use that to create the new season of your life. You know, I, I tell people in my business, it's like, Hey, this is a reflection of your next five, 10 years. How you show up in today is typically how you're going to show up in other things in your life. And you want to treat these certain seasons of your life really seriously and try and, you know, pull as much out of it as possible because you're going to use those life lessons, um, in really anything that you do. And, you know, the fraternity was definitely a fond experience for me as well. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, like for, for real life examples of things that we did that I think helped, like you would think it's all just partying in a fraternity because that's what you see in movies, but like we're doing things like budgeting, you know, uh, planning huge events, right? Like we used to do formals and, you know, different, that, that was a whole thing where you had to coordinate a whole weekend for a hundred people at a hotel, you know what I mean? With like six meals and, you know, transportation and, you know, all the, all this kind of stuff that was, you know, very, very important that people were paying for. So learning how to put on large events, uh, you know, deal with, uh, you know, like I said, deal with different groups of people and whatnot. It was, it was so beneficial. No, totally, man. Gersh, my last question for you, man, knowing everything that you know today, the Gershon who is TikTok famous and crushing it at your brokerage and just, you know, an awesome husband, um, and then just crushing it at life, knowing everything that you know today, what would you tell yourself in college? If you could give yourself your best advice to help fast track your, your success route Buy Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> buy it and then sell it before 2022. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I would say the one thing I would say is that you have to plant trees for the next generation. Have you ever heard that before? Yes. I've heard that quote. So the, the, the whole point of it is that like the payoff for the work that you're going to do, it's not going to be tomorrow, next week, next month, but you got to know just like a tree, it's eventually going to grow and you'll be able to, you know, see its beauty harvest or whatever else. And that was something that I, I really lacked early on in my life. You know, I was more so impulsive, uh, wanted things now, just like any other teenage, you know, teenage kid growing up or whatever. Uh, I would tell myself that like compounding interest is a real thing. Every 1% change you make every single day grows on itself. And before you know it, you know what I mean? You're thousands of percentage points exponentially better than you were before. So just, just telling my younger self that and knowing that, you know, the little work each day accumulates would have been awesome to hear. You know, I, I had to learn it through trial and error, obviously, but uh, that's that's what I would tell my younger self. Compound interest, man. Love that. Gersh, where uh, where could the viewers find you? I'm on uh, TikTok, Instagram, and now YouTube. I'm going to start pushing some longer form content. I want to do like a, a kind of like a real estate for dummies, you know, real estate for beginners type courses. So people that don't really know what's going on with real estate, you know, they, maybe they want to buy a house, sell a house in the future, and they don't you know, know the terminology, know the process and whatever. I'm going to start pushing a lot of that stuff out. So I'm on all those platforms. Uh, my uh, my uh, handle is at my first name, Gershon, G-E-R-S-H-O-N dot Vegas. Awesome. Guys, definitely if you're just looking for a house or just interested in learning more about real estate, whether it's the investing side or a house for your own, definitely hit them up. We'll put all the links in the bio. And uh, yeah, man, thank you so much. Hey, uh, this was great, man. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely, guys. Till next time.